Well, guys, I want to thank you for tuning in and making this podcast a part of your day today. I am your host, Ryan Sebastian, and I am joined with my co-host, David Pinkham. I am coming to you from the cockpit of the Razor Crest with (laughs) Baby Yoda because I have been Googling Zoom backgrounds like a crazy person. (laughs) Yes, for those of you who are, of course, all of you are listening, you can't see what I'm seeing, but I'm seeing a hilarious background on Zoom right now with a baby Yoda in the background, literally sipping something and moving around. It's, <laughs> it's quite hilarious, quite hilarious. So if you if you love, of course, all of us are doing Zoom calls right now because we're all yep. digital. So make sure you Google Mandalorian background. Yep. It's good stuff, man. <laughs> it's good to be here, man. I'm excited about today's interview. Yes. Yeah, so this interview, who we're actually going to be talking about today, the topic, um, it's, it's a little bit different. We, uh, a while back, I would say almost last fall, we did an episode on sexual addictions and we kind of talked that through what that was and how to protect yourself and your ministry. Uh, when it comes to that, but we're this week we're going to actually be talking about the sexual binge and purge cycle, and we're going to actually talk a little bit more on specifically church leaders how we're more and more being susceptible when it mm-hmm. comes to sexual immorality. Um, and again, there was a thing that came out, and whether it's true or not, don't know. But there was a thing that came out about Robbie Zacharias after he died. I'm not sure if that's true. And there seems like there's something coming out more and more about from ministry leaders failing morally when it comes to uh, sexual uh, sins, sexual uh, addictions, or or whatnot. And so I, I wanted to talk to specifically about the sexual binge and purge cycle. And I don't want to get too much into that because we're going to be talking a little more in the interview when we talk to uh, Jay Stringer, who is a, a therapist specifically in this field when it comes to sexuality in men, in men and women. And, and he, he, we talked to specifically in ministry. As us, as ministry leaders, how can we protect ourselves? Because sometimes when we, as ministry leaders, we, we focus on uh, putting a fence around us with protection, which, which I do that. I have covenant eyes and all my, yep. all my devices. Me too. I try to protect myself. Uh, but that's the start. Yeah. If, we, if we just uh, stop there, we're going to continue to fail miserably. And we, me and Jay kind of hashed this out and what we can do for ministry leaders. So I'm really excited about our topic today because I think it's really pertinent for us right now dealing with, um, with COVID because uh, more and more people are struggling with depression, including ministry leaders right now. Yeah, isolation does not help. 
not at all. <laughs> and it's, it, it's a breeding field for us to fail morally as leaders. Yeah. We're not careful. And so I'm, I was really thankful to have the opportunity to talk to Jay specifically about this topic. Well, guys, stay tuned as we talk with Jay Stringer. Well, guys, I am super, super excited about our interview today. We're going to be talking about a topic I think it's neglected, uh, talking about in the church. Um, I don't know if we're afraid to talk about it or we just don't want to start controversy. But before we dive in that, I'm really excited to be talking to to Jay Stringer specifically about this topic. So, so Jay, before we dive into what we're talking about today, we're actually be talking about the sexual binge and purge cycle, and we'll dive in what that means here in just a bit. How about you introduce yourself a little bit in journey in ministry and where you are today? Yeah. Uh, so I am a licensed mental health counselor and an ordained minister and the author of a book titled Unwanted. Uh, how sexual brokenness reveals our way to healing. So most of my clinical and ministry work is really inviting men and women uh, to understand the key drivers that bring them to their unwanted sexual behaviors. Yeah, so so you wrote the book, um, Unwanted. Um, and again, and you're, you were very gracious to give me your second, uh, your assistant gave that to me to read through. And, and we were talking a little bit before we recorded that unfortunately I was able to finish the book, but what I've read so far has been fascinating and, and very good. So how, how about you kind of dive in a little bit um, about the book itself and why you wrote it? So I wrote Unwanted for both uh, personal and professional reasons. Uh, from a professional standpoint, I was uh, the sex addiction therapist for the city of Seattle. And in my role there, uh, part of what I would do was to work with men who had been arrested for soliciting women in prostitution. And so one of the first men that I was working with, one of the things he told me is he said, Jay, I definitely buy sex for the power and the pleasure of it. Uh, but far more, uh, one of the things that gets me out of bed is I get in my SUV and I just cruise around the streets of Seattle, really trying to lock eyes with women on the streets. And he said that could be women in prostitution, but it could just be someone uh, at a stoplight. And as we began to unpack part of his story, one of the things that he told me was uh, he grew up a pretty broken family system. His parents were divorced at age five. And he said uh, at one point in middle school, uh, his parents got him a Schwinn bicycle. And he said, Jay, I love that bike. Uh, And I said, what did you love about it? And he said, well, I used to get on my bike and just kind of cruise all around the neighborhood trying to find girls in my class. Uh, And he would say that the best time to go out uh, would be kind of late spring, early summer when people would be having barbecues and would invite me in. Uh, 
And he said, I would just kind of cruise around trying to lock eyes with all these girls in my class, their friend, my friend's moms. And so for him, that was kind of the first time in his life that he began to link some of this cruising behavior as an adult with some of these vulnerable dimensions of his childhood. And that's what I started seeing over and over again, is that a lot of these men who began to participate in struggles like pornography, buying sex, infidelity, uh, the problems that they were facing uh, were really the outcome of a process in their life rather than just something that they were morally corrupt participating in. So uh, the other thing was just from a personal level, I, I grew up as a PK, a pastor's kid. And so uh, you know, it was a smaller Presbyterian church that I grew up in. And so whenever people would have a crisis of any kind, they would try and reach my dad at the church office. And then if they couldn't get a hold of him, they would leave uh, basically messages on our answer machine. And that answering machine was a little bit like a, <laughs> uh, just like a black box of, oh my goodness, this is where people are actually telling the truth. They tell the truth in the crises of their life. They don't tell the truth on Sundays. Uh, and so one of those moments for me was hearing that a, an elder in our church had had an affair and his wife just found out about it. And she called our our home answering machine, just in tears, leaving that message. And uh, that to me was just one of those things that always stuck with me of, you know, why is it that uh, it's not until crisis that some of these dimensions of our life get engaged? Uh, and so with all of that, I decided to do some research on about 3,800 men and women to get a sense of what was really driving us to pursue pornography, to buy sex, to pursue extramarital affairs? Uh, and the reason why I wanted to do research was most of the Christian paradigm, I, I would say, is just heavy on lust management. And if you've grown up in the church for any length of time, you know what lust management is. That's the, you know, bounce your eyes if you're having an inappropriate thought. Uh, some people slap rubber bands around their wrist when they're having a inappropriate thought. Uh, I remember some youth groups growing up would have basically a jar that you would put $5 in if you happen to masturbate. And I don't know who collected the money, probably the poor youth pastor. Um, but just that, that sense of like, this was all trying to manage our behavior. So that was kind of the Christian conservative side. And I would say the more progressive approach would be, you know, let's remove the shame and the stigma associated with our sexual choices. So if we just create ethical porn or if we just kind of let people do what they want, well, that will create freedom. Well, it turns out that that's not necessarily true either. So I would say both paradigms, lust management and shame management actually don't lead to freedom. And so in Unwanted, I wanted to ask people who were struggling with all these issues of sexual brokenness to tell me their whole story. Uh, and what we learned was this, that unwanted sexual behavior was not random at all. It was always a direct reflection of the parts of their story that remained unaddressed. And so what that means is that our sexual brokenness can actually be a roadmap to healing rather than a life sentence to sexual shame or addiction. So just that, that key premise that our unwanted sexual behaviors, uh, even down to the porn searches that we make, uh, can be shaped and predicted based on past pain and some of the current roadblocks that we don't know how to navigate. No, absolutely. It's, it's, 
I had to laugh a little bit when you were talking about the rubber band, slapping the rubber band, because because I remember that vividly uh, when I was in, I think, middle school. Uh, either our youth okay. pastor or a leader did something similar to that. Um, and we have rubber bands talking about slap each other, slap your wrist every time you have a bad thought. And anyway, it's just hilarious that I'm going back into the late 90s uh, youth ministry when it comes to direct exactly that, lust management. Yes. Um, and and the and that kind of brings up what we what I want to talk about a little bit uh, today because you 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 wrote an article uh, I think roughly about a month ago, uh, maybe a little bit longer than that where you talked about um, the the sexual binge and purge cycle. And when, when I was reading through your article, I was very fascinated. Uh, about that uh, specifically because it's so true. So, how, how about for those who, for those who are listening, how about you explain what exactly is the binge and purge cycle? Sure. So, I mean, it's it's taken adapted from an eating disorder called bulimia. And so, uh, if you understand bulimia, bulimia is kind of like this obsessive desire. Uh, to lose weight. So whereas an anorexic, uh, someone who's struggling with anorexia, uh, might try to completely avoid food altogether, they might eat very minimal amounts of food. Someone who's struggling with bulimia uh, is trying to control their weight, but they go through these binge and purge cycles. And so what the binge is, is you know, you go to the grocery store and you eat a carton of ice cream, you eat a couple sandwiches, uh, and you realize that you've just indulged in so much food, uh, and then you need a way to begin to purge that out. And so that purge could be, you know, I, I can learn that if I run eight to 10 miles, then I actually don't feel the shame of what I've just indulged, because I know if I'm counting my calories, I know that I've now run more miles than the purge that I just, or, or the binge that I just took place in. Uh, that could also be a type of uh, vomiting where, you know, I eat a lot of food, I, I realize what I've just done, and then I go right to the toilet to try and throw it up, uh, throw, throw up in a trash can. Um, and so what ends up happening, I would say, in a, in a sexual level can be something very similar, that we have this obsessive desire to eliminate lust in our life, to eliminate any um, recognition of that we struggle with lust, that we struggle with anger. And so we tried to hide uh, our binge into pornography, our binge into a hookup. And then we end up trying to purge it out through a lot of just uh, things that seem fairly virtuous. So it could be through preaching a sermon, it could be through doing your devotions or listening to Hillsong after you've just kind of binged on a lot of pornography. And then you spend the next day just kind of, in a sense, worshiping God. But what is that worship actually doing? It's it's trying to purge the sin from the night before. And again, don't have anything wrong with worship music, but when you are not confronting your sexual life, and then you're using religion to escape the reality of your brokenness, you're in something of a binge and a purge cycle. And this is just one of those things that happens to so many evangelical men and women is that we try to manage, we have an obsessive desire to kind of get rid of sexual brokenness in our life. Yet we keep going back to it. We are sexual beings. We have lust, we have desire. And then we consume that content and we feel a lot of shame. 
And then uh, we try to purge that out. So it's just this really heartbreaking cycle that so many men and women participate in. Yeah, and uh, would you agree that, because um, I, have, I have a very strong opinion on this, because this is part of my past in a lot of ways, because I was addicted to pornography uh, from about age 10, um, heavily up to the thir- until I was 13, and this is way before smartphones. And then struggled off and on in high school and college, uh, again, before smartphones. Uh, do, do you think that possibly with the invention of a smartphone that has accelerated um, the amount of pornography and sexuality that's consumed uh, by Christians and Christian leaders as a whole? Yes, uh, so much so. I mean, in, in, when I talk to some of my clients who are, let's say, in their 60s, 70s, they had to work really hard to find pornography. I mean, they, they uh, maybe randomly found it in a field every once in a while, but if they didn't have it in their home, uh, they would have to kind of sneak or steal or try it. So they, they worked really hard to find it. This generation, iGen and younger, I mean, we you have to work extremely hard to avoid it. Um, and, it, you know, there is something called typo squatting, where even if you accidentally type in the name of your favorite Disney character, or you actually put in the name of your favorite, you know, childhood author, Disney character, there are porn sites that actually typo squat, meaning if you misspell a word, it's going to be redirected to a porn site. So in many ways, the, the sex industry is preying upon innocence and actively trying to engage us. So uh, absolutely, uh, iPhones uh, and tablets have, have changed the world. Yeah, I have to say this, and um, for me personally, and I've shared this uh, on the podcast before, is because being a recovering porn addict, because I, I have an addictive personality by nature, and that's with everything. You, you, I'm all, either all in, full forced or not very much of addictive personality. That's another reason why I don't uh, consume alcohol. Cause I know if I did, I'll most likely would be an alcoholic. Um, but with the, with that, I, I have to have certain protections around myself with devices. Uh, I use a thing, uh, pr- uh, program accountability software called uh, Covenize, mm-hmm. uh, which sends a report of what's when I'm what, looking at my devices to my wife, I have that on my, all my devices, computers, I don't have access to any of the passwords, even for Netflix, for Amazon, none of that. And people may be hearing this thing, thinking that's an extreme, but and I've, by me not having freedom, I actually have freedom. And that's why I try to explain it with people is I don't have to worry about me being exposed and potentially being falling into temptation because I'm trying to remove some of that guardrails in my life because... You're exactly right that you have to work almost hard to avoid pornography and a sexual content within our devices, our streaming services. You almost have to work to avoid it because it's right in our face constantly. And so these are the steps I have to do to do that, to try to protect myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think, you know, that that's one of those questions that we all have to ask ourselves in terms of like, what is wise and what's a way to kind of include others in our journey to healing. Uh, and, and so some of the reason why I wrote this book is I had a friend kind of very similar uh, to the story that you just shared about yourself. He said, 
the problem, Jay, was that when I had been having the same conversation with my accountability partner for 15 years and he got my internet report for the last like seven or eight years, something wasn't working there. And so uh, that's where a lot of my desire within this book is to actually invite people to say, how can instead of just creating fences and lots of quarantine around your life, how can you actually be curious about your sexual fantasies and your porn searches? Which I know is a pretty radical idea because most of us are trying to flee lust and get rid of it and build up fences so that that intruder never comes in. But part of what I ask people to consider is let's, let's imagine it's late in the evening and you hear that familiar knock of lust. Uh, what are you going to do? Well, some people have those force fields and those, you know, they don't know any of their passwords. Uh, sometimes uh, other people are not as wise or mature and they just let the intruder come into their house and ransack the entire space. Well, part of what I'm asking is, could you actually go out onto the front porch of your life and begin to interrogate your lust? to ask it questions. So uh, most of us have a type of, you know, what we refer to as an arousal template. And that's a constellation of images, thoughts, sensations, uh, celebrities, times of day, anything that we find sexually arousing. And what my research showed is that all of those things actually have uh, really important things to teach us about our sexual life. So let me give you a couple examples. So. Uh, one example is, let's say that you were a man who uh, wanted to see a woman who was a blonde, a teenager, uh, a college student, or maybe a race that suggested to you some level of subservience. Uh, well, that uh, arousal could actually be shaped and predicted by three categories. One, uh, you had a pretty strict father growing up. The second was that you were struggling with a lack of purpose in your life. And the third was that you had high levels of shame. And so if you're beginning to kind of think through that, well, pornography makes a lot of sense that if you were overpowered by a very uh, rigid father, uh, if you are dealing with a lot of lack of purpose in your life, you don't know where to go with your life. Um, pornography is going to function as a type of squatter in your life that uh, it gives you something to feel powerful within. And it also gives you a place to reestablish power and control in a world that you feel like you don't have much of it. And so again, that's, that's I think the really big choice ahead of us is we can either fence and quarantine ourselves from our sexual fantasies and our sexual life, or we can begin to interrogate it, ask us ask it questions and learn the stories that we need to heal from. So, you know, Ryan, you mentioned kind of, you know, finding porn at 10. Um, well, that's a really common story for a lot of us is, you know, we were, I would say we didn't just find porn and in many ways we were introduced to it. And so that could be from uh, a neighbor down the street, an older boy, uh, that could be that our father actually kept a stash in his closet or out in the garage. And so again, we have to step into the really difficult naming of that's actually on a spectrum of sexual abuse that when you think about it you didn't have a choice someone introduced it to you and if a parent kept porn in their home well they're setting up the very very high likelihood that a child is going to find it and so it, again once we begin to really step into uh, so many dimensions of our sexual life 
what we'll find is that there's a whole lot more going on than just a mere struggle with lust. Uh, in many ways, these struggles are an outcome of the process of things like sexual abuse, a very rigid family, a very disengaged family. And my research showed that if that was the type of family systems that you come from, well, it's a, a you know, it's almost a near certainty that you're going to struggle with some form of sexual brokenness as an adult. Yeah, I, I, I would have to definitely agree that when it comes to pornography particularly, those who are addicted usually fall in the camp of either being physically abused as a child, sexually abused, or neglected. That's, mm-hmm. that's pretty the three, the three common things that I've seen uh, in articles and research I've read over the years. That's a pretty common underlying uh, of causing at least the outreach of, of going to pornography. Um, so I, de- I 100% agree with that. One thing I do want to caveat in, in as well, uh, I definitely agree with, with uh, you as, when it comes to having a fence, making sure that you're engaging your, your addictions as well while you're in the fence, asking questions and, and being engaging. So definitely agree with that. But one thing I, I, I try to practice along with that, because I've learned that it really comes down to a heart issue. As a believer in Christ, it really comes down to a heart issue, which kind of cov- covers some of the things that we're talking about. And I've had a practice in my own life is when I'm in, when I'm having temptations, when I'm having struggles, because that, that, those temptations don't go away. doesn't matter if you're married. doesn't matter if you're a recovering porn addict. Um, haven't looked at a porn for years. It doesn't matter. Those, those temptations will always be there the rest of your life in some ways at a higher degree from, than those who are not necessarily addicted to porn. So when, when I have times of, of deep, deep temptation, for me personally, and this sounds so simple, uh, but I have, what I do is I try to practice is I have to, in that moment, pause and spend time with God in prayer. Uh, understanding that I can't get over this temptation and this struggle without him working in my life. So for me personally, that's, that's one, one way. Of course, I mean, I have a fence that I try to have around me to make sure I'm not exposed. Because the more I'm exposed, the more temptation I'm going to have personally and the more likelihood I'm going to fail. So I have to have that fence. But within that fence, making sure my, when I'm during temptation, that my relationship with God in those moments is where it needs to be as well. Yeah, I, yeah, fully agree. I mean, I think that, you know, when, when we're struggling, I think part of what we have to anticipate is the kindness and curiosity of God. So like when, when Adam has just eaten of the tree that he was commanded not to eat from, God arrives in the garden not to say like, you know, stop doing that, bounce your eyes from all tempting pieces of fruit that you find. He asks some questions and says, you know, where, where are you? What have you done? Uh, and to Hagar, who's just been traumatized by the first family of our faith, the angel of the Lord shows up and says, where do you come from and where are you going? And so if we are hearing the voice of God with regard to our sexual struggles, um, and it's not one of curiosity and kindness, well, then we're not hearing the voice of God. And so that sense of, yes, this is a heart issue. And part of what happens is, you know, you named it really well. Like if, if you grew up in a family that was disengaged or rigid, let's say, 
Well, what happens in a disengaged family system, like the client that I was mentioning earlier who cruised around the neighborhood, well, he did grow up in a very disengaged home. And so whenever you struggle with lust, that's actually the outcome of disengagement. And so that sense of, you know, most of us have been through something of the hell of middle school. And just that sense of when you went through difficulty, did you have a mom or a dad that were attuned to your face that could say, you know, when you left for school, you seemed okay, but when you got home, something changed. Uh, so did they engage you? Or was your mom too interested in keeping a clean house? Was your dad too interested in ministry or his work? And so that sense of if you don't learn attachment, kindness within a family system, well, you're going to have a lot of lust that drives you outside of your family home in order to try and find connection with other people. Um, if, you grew, if you grow up in a family that's very rigid, well, that anger has to go somewhere. That if my dad has so many rules and regulations, well, that's going to tick me off at the end of the day. And where do I take that? Well, in Christian circles, I can't get angry at my dad because that would be dishonoring. And so what happens for a lot of us is we find power and anger kind of playing out in our pornography life where I'm actually able to reestablish power and use another human being for my own sexual gain. And so that sense of, yeah, these are heart issues of lust and anger. That's what Jesus is going at in Matthew 5 when he says, um, you know, it, we all struggle with lust. We all struggle with anger. And by the way, when we struggle with those things, we are murderers and adulterers. And so that sense of, yes, our, our hearts uh, need to be engaged, but far more, we need to go back to the stories of pain that have marked our life. And I think that's what, you know, Matthew 5, 4 says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Um, I really think that temptation and sexual temptation uh, is not something that people have to be at war with for their entire lives. I really think that as you begin to heal and process the pain that drives you to pornography, uh, well, then you're actually attending to some of those places of woundedness that are driving your involvement with porn to begin with. Um, and so I think that is the process of God showing up in our lives to really ask us questions to say, you struggle with porn. Uh, where do you come from? Where are you going? Uh, and so men in my research who were struggling with a lack of purpose were seven times more likely to increase their involvement in porn. So again, it's just one of those things where if you don't know who you are and don't know where you're going in life, pornography is going to be highly attractive to you because it, it gives you a world where you can have anything you want at any time. And I don't know any vocation, any uh, vocational success that is that easy. Um, so. Yeah, you, there's one thing I can want to caveat into uh, the next thing I want to ask you is that you wrote um, that rather than address our sexual behaviors, evangelical men move to quarantine themselves from women. When I read that statement, I, I found that a little bit fascinating and also true. But I want you to, can you, see, can you elaborate a little bit what you meant by that? Sure, yeah. So let's say that I've just binged on pornography last night. 
well, part of my purge cycle is, well, now I need to eliminate the threat, right? So the problem is actually women. The problem is that they look a particular way. There's not enough modesty in the world, or I don't really trust myself to have female friends. Uh, it, so if I get too close to a woman, well, eventually she's going to find her way into my sexual fantasy life. And I actually want to honor God. So therefore, if I quarantine, if I don't allow women into ministry, if I'm a ministry leader, if I don't kind of get close to them or give them leadership access, well, then I'm able to try and manage my sexual life again. And all you're doing is you're not confronting your own wounds and your own entitlement. You're trying to keep women away from you so that you don't struggle. And I think this is a really core ethical uh, issue for a lot of us as men, particularly men in ministry, is how are we quarantining women from uh, really increasing their involvement in ministries because we actually don't trust ourselves. And I think this is really the radical nature of what Jesus is saying in Matthew 5 is he's, he's speaking uh, to a culture with a lot of rabbis that would, you know, essentially blame women for the way that they entice men. And what Jesus is saying is, uh-uh, uh, you struggle, you have epithemeo, you struggle with lust, this covetousness. And that covetousness is the primary issue that, that we're dealing with here. And so it's a really radical call of where do you actually find the problem? And I think part of the point of the gospel is myself as a man, I need to recognize that I alone uh, in the person that stands in the greatest need of the gospel, uh, not someone else. And I think that creates a very radically different posture of being able to say, I don't need to quarantine and make women the bad objects or the, the temptresses or the Jezebels. I actually need to attend to my own sexual story and why I would prefer to sexualize women and objectify them rather than what it means to really honor them. No, absolutely. And that, that kind of as a, a caveat uh, to this is that you can't effectively minister to people if you're not ministering to women also, because yes. they're, they're, they're part of the body of Christ. So, you, so I, I totally agree what you're saying here is, you ha again, it comes down to instead of looking at women as the problem, because in reality, even though you may not be exactly saying it, but having an attitude of quarantine, that's what you're practicing, is that women, women are the problem. But in reality, your heart is what you, again, going back to the, going back to your heart, that's what needs to be addressed. Uh, yourself, because you're, you're actually the problem, not women. Yes. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's where we have to come back to the image of God. God created us male and female. So we both reflect something of the image of God in male and female. And if you actually want to quarantine yourself from women, you're actually quarantining yourself from a whole lot of the image of God. And so it's not just that I need to minister to women. It's also that women need to be able to minister to me. Well, what happens a lot with vulnerability or a woman's strength or a woman's tenderness is that I can either feel really intimidated by that or I can feel really, uh, uh, I can go to objectifying it. And so both of those paradigms of like, this woman is just too strong or this woman is just uh, too much of a temptation are both strategies to kind of 
keep something of the image of God uh, very far away from us. And that's not how we grow. Yeah, and, and uh, the reality when it comes to, and again, this is one thing I, I, I practice, but I don't practice what this, I don't practice what we're talking about, but I do be careful of meeting with women alone. Okay, that that is, and the, can that's just being smart for is removing yourself to being accused, falsely accused, because we live in a world where every everybody is falsely accused about everything. So you, it's okay to be smart in that realm, but that's not what we're talking about for those you are listening. What we're talking about is completely unengaging women altogether for the fear of lusting or being sexually active with them. So, yeah, so that, I absolutely, absolutely agree. And, and the reason why I kind of, and some of you are listening, some of these youth pastors and youth leaders may be listening right now, maybe wonder why are we covering this topic? Why is this important? I'm going to read something real quick. It's actually is a report that came out from Barna back in 2016, specifically talking about uh, pastors and youth pastors. And they found that 57% of pastors and 64% of youth pastors admit they have struggled with porn either currently or in the past. And it goes on to say that around 21% of youth pastors and 5% of pastors claim they're currently addicted to porn and they're living in constant fear of discovery. What's interesting about that study is that when it comes to porn, it is higher among youth pastors than past in a senior leadership. I, I think I think both numbers are actually higher because in reality yes. we're not gonna most people aren't gonna be honest in a ministry world about that because we're afraid of losing our jobs. Okay, so I think I really think that number is higher. But it's interesting when I read that report that if, for youth pastors it is much higher when it comes to porn and sexual addiction. Yes, it, it, you're exactly right. I mean, anytime there is self-reported data, uh, you have to, you know, there's a, if I'm a therapist and someone says I drink two beers a night, uh, most therapists double that. Um, so just that sense of yes, uh, there is so much within the church that, and again, that we've inherited a system of lust management. And so then you get into ministry because you actually really want to honor God, but very similar to marriage, right? What happens in marriage is most people think if I just get married, uh, a lot of my sexual temptation, my desire for porn is going to dissipate. And lo and behold, marriage will intensify every sexual struggle that you have. Same thing with ministry. Sometimes people think if I actually got myself in a position where I'm teaching more, I'm in the word more, I'm seeing people's lives transform, then I'm actually going to kind of be able to combat my sexual brokenness that way. And lo and behold, ministry will intensify any sexual struggle that you have. And so, you know, ministry is just that perfect place for the binge purge cycle because you have you know, a, a lot of ministry, you're doing really good things, you're engaging people's lives, but you have a lot of unaddressed harm, and you really don't know who you are outside of ministry. And so then in the midst of all that brokenness, in the midst of the pain, in the midst of just feeling like I don't really measure up, or I don't really have what I want, 
will you begin to pursue pornography that gives you a sense of power and control in your life? And so, yes, uh, our, our sexual brokenness is just a crucible that we need to uh, have a lot more honesty about in our lives um, and to really attend to the stories within us that most need to, to heal. And next, I want to ask you is you've, you've already given some advice uh, throughout our, our entire conversation. But since we know, since I, I just read this report and, and we know that the level of a porn addiction, sexual addiction is much higher based off of research within the youth ministry, youth leader world. Uh, what advice would you give youth leaders specifically in this area? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so I, I would say two kind of thematic things and then a couple very practical resources. Uh, one would be we have to turn and face our shame. Uh, one of the stories that I write about in my book is this guy named Alex Casagrande, who was the, he's the videographer of the show uh, Shark Week. So he gets in the great in the waters with great white sharks without a cage. And he was asked, what, Andy, what do you do when you're in the waters with a great white shark? And he said, it's very counterintuitive, but you swim right at the shark with the camera. And, and so what he says is that when you swim up with the camera to that shark, that shark will actually bonk its nose against the camera lens, realize that it's not food, and then it will swim off. And he has this really fascinating phrase. And he says, if you do not act like prey, they will not treat you like prey. And I think that's a really big category is that all of us as ministry leaders have great white stories of shame. And most of us try and run our entire lives and swim away from shame rather than actually turning to face it. So step one is you have to turn and face the reality of your sexual shame and sexual story. Um, and where do you do that? Well, we need community. Um, you know, a lot of, uh, I'd say in the research, about 59% of people struggling with unwanted sexual behavior did not feel like they had anyone to talk to. And so part of what happens in community and, uh, it is that I can actually tell my story and I can hear other people's stories because in isolation, in our shame, we make up a lot of lies. Like, I'm probably the only youth pastor in this county struggling with this. And it's like, uh-uh. Uh, how, how many churches are in your county with youth pastors? Okay, three quarters of them are also struggling with this. So can we actually begin to engage this in community? So, um, you know, one is to face shame, and the second is to turn towards community. And I would say on a very practical note, um, that's, that's a lot of my ministry is trying to create resources for churches and youth ministers uh, to begin to really identify the key drivers in their sexual brokenness. So I have a sexual behavior self-assessment that's about 160 questions, and it's going to give people insights into what are the stories driving that. What are their sexual fantasies actually trying to tell them? And then how do you find freedom? And then we also created a online course uh, for small groups and ministry leaders to actually go through uh, about a five month process to begin to really understand their story and to begin to see what is the connection between their story and their sexual brokenness. Because it's, 
that's where I would say most of us will change through curiosity, that we need to understand, you know, why is it that I go to pornography on Sunday evenings? Why is it that anytime I'm angry with my spouse and she doesn't want to have sex or he doesn't want to have sex, I find myself going to porn? Uh, all the problems that we face are crucibles that we need to go through in order to find growth. And so I would say check out Unwanted, the, the assessment uh, or the online course, and that those are very practical resources that you can start today to begin to face your shame and to do so in community. Yeah, one thing you mentioned, uh, which, which everything you said is great. Uh, one thing that just stuck, stood out to me was just the, uh, uh, the loneliness. Uh, the reason why I say that is because it's a, it's a known fact, and research shows that the average pastor is lonely. <laughs> and the average pastor doesn't have a very close friend in their ministry where they can talk to. So I, I highly agree in, uh, that that is a, a one underlying factor of why uh, pastors turn to porn. So I absolutely agree with that. So if you're, if, you're list, if you're listening, one thing I would encourage you to do and, of course, find a community specifically to talk about this issue, but also just find, a, uh, with that, just find a community of, of friends that you can get around. And one, one uh, way you can do that, and we have, we've talked about this in the podcast, and I'll be talking about it more, is, is Youth Ministry Booster. Uh, which is a way you can get a our mastermind group of youth pastors. There's hundreds and hundreds of youth pastors in this network. You can connect it with like-minded people, share your struggles, uh, what you're dealing with ministry, and build friendships within that that network. Uh, but that's just one way because someone like me, I live in an area where it's very, very hard to, get, to, to have friends. I really don't have that many close friends in ministry here. Because uh, there's a lot of a lot of competition, youth pastors don't want to work together, which is sad, but it's, it's the reality here where I'm located. And so I started going and utilizing Youth Ministry Booster, and it has been a awesome way to be able to share my struggles what I'm dealing with in community. Um, so, so I absolutely absolutely agree with that. Uh, well, Jay, as we wrap up. Um, what what is the best way for people to get in contact with you, either to talk about uh, this issue specifically, or just to get connect with you to ask more questions uh, outside this realm, or get connect to you when it comes to your book? Sure, uh, my website is j a y dash. Stringer s t r i n g e r dot com, and there you can. Find a, I, I do a lot of individual intensives for people in ministry uh, trying to outgrow their unwanted sexual behaviors. Uh, and then there's a lot of other resources that I mentioned, the SPSA, the course, uh, some blogs, those sorts of things. So jay-stringer.com. Well, Jay, I just want to thank you for taking your time to come out of the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. Well, guys, I... I'm very thankful for Jay and his heart and his passion, specifically on how we can deal and work through our sexuality. And I'm really thankful for his book. If you don't have his book, uh, by the way, it's it's Unwanted, and How Sexual Brokenness, Brokenness Reveals Our Way to Healing. Now I'll have a link to the show notes directly to it. It's a phenomenal book 
of how can we as we as men and women how can we work through our sexuality how can we understand that it is designed by god it's not a bad thing it's not an ugly thing it's designed specifically by god and it's a wonderful thing if we if we do it if we do it in god's design you know we now if our sexual our sexual tendencies if we do it outside of god's designs it's going to completely fail and destroy our lives and our ministry and the people all around yeah and i've recently been talking with one of the guys that's an ally for me on covenant eyes and uh and we've been just you know processing things and especially during the covid season and and uh, one of the things that he's uh, he mentioned was uh, something that someone had said to him recently about breaking the power of the secret and not allowing that to have a hold over you. And and I guess I just want to encourage you guys that this is this is a battle that does not have to be a losing battle. Um, and uh, if you feel like it is one, uh, it doesn't have to be. You don't have to get stuck there. So. Uh, hopefully you were encouraged by today's interview. And if you have been listening for a long time, thank you for your loyalty and listenership. And uh, we love you guys. We, we are very excited to bring this content to you. And if you have not yet, uh, please leave a comment and a star review. Uh, we would really appreciate that because it, allow us, it allows us to continue uh, bringing solid content for the youth ministry world. Uh, and it'll be higher up in the search results so that people can get to that if that's what they're looking for on the different podcast platforms uh, that we are on. So please uh, feel free to do that for us. Well, guys, I am really excited about our next episode. We're actually going to be interviewing John Cooper from Skillet. I'm so excited. Oh, yes. About his new book, Awake and Alive to Truth. In fact, I want to give you a little clip on what you can expect in our next episode. What I've been encouraging people is this, go ahead and bite the bullet now that they are not going to like you. You can meet them halfway if you want to now, but on the next, when the next level comes, you'll have to eventually end up making a stand. Well guys, stay tuned for our next episode.